All right, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Genesis chapter 18 as we continue there in the book of Genesis. I was going to try and take in chapter 18 and 19 tonight, and I just, as I was preparing, just sensed that the Lord would have us kind of just hone in our attention on chapter 18 by itself, and we'll pick back up in chapter 19 next time, so... If you remember at this time, by the point we've come to in Abraham's life and journey here, Abram has been in the promised land now for 24 years. He's 99 years old. Uh, Sarah's, therefore, 10 years younger, 89 years old. And uh, just under 100 years of age, he's still waiting upon this promise of God that he received quite some time ago, over two decades ago. God spoke this promise into his life and revealed himself to him. And the Lord, as we've seen, has been reaffirming the promise repeatedly. Uh, Periodically, the Lord will come back and he'll again confirm the promise to Abraham. Abraham doesn't see the circumstantial evidence of the promise. Uh, He doesn't see any indication that it's going to be fulfilled other than the spoken word of his God, who's now become his God, spoken directly to him in assurance and in clarity, and Abraham continuing to just believe God by faith, continuing to just look to the Lord, and that not without, remember, lapses in faith. Abram has taken his own little detours on occasion, just like you and I. He's a man of faith, and he's held up as a man of faith in the Scripture as an example to us, and yet he's a man who has imperfect faith. Uh, who at times struggles in unbelief just like we do. And I'm thankful for that because I can look to Abraham as an example and realize that that God does not expect perfect faith from us, that he knows that we're growing in this life of faith, that at times we all get discouraged. We all wrestle at times with what Hebrews calls an evil heart of unbelief that can kind of creep into our lives. I remember one time when I was teaching that passage years ago, from Hebrews where it warns against, you know, the danger of the, you know, an evil heart of unbelief. And, and I remember specifically sharing when I was teaching that passage how it, it, it's kind of like, you know, the devil is, is almost like this, you know, secret hidden sniper uh, that kind of just hides out among the ranks of the church or God's people. And it just seems like that the arrow that he likes to fire, uh, like a sniper to just pick people off on occasion, really is unbelief. We often don't think of unbelief as that big of an issue. But yet when you realize the realities of what faith translates in our lives, our eternal salvation and the ability to be able to inherit all of God's promises by grace through faith, the scripture tells us we inherit everything that God's promised to us. We don't work for it or earn it. Uh, that Hebrews tells us that uh, without faith it's impossible to please God. Uh, how really essential faith is to our lives and belief and trust in the Lord is to our lives and therefore that the devil would really hone in on that area to really assault and antagonize and attack God's people. You know, many times we think that the devil just wants to get us to, to mess up, to get us to you know, say a foul word or to go on some little detour or commit some act of immorality or, or, or go out and just get drunk sometime. And not saying that the devil doesn't use those things. But quite honestly, I think the devil realizes the repercussions of unbelief and the long-term damage of doubt that the devil can really accomplish in our life if he can work that wrench into our life can really be very effective and a lot more far-reaching than just one mistake where why we have a great regret and then we come to the Lord and we confess and, and we move on from there from just some simple stumbling which we're all prone to commit as well. And Abram has had his challenges. We've watched where he walked away for a time from the plan of God. He's made some poor decisions here or there. We saw the whole Hagar episode. And then remember, 13 years of silence. But yet the Lord then comes after 13 years of silence. He appears to Abraham. I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. And then again, God in his grace. He doesn't say, and Abram, by the way, I picked somebody else. I mean, just I've tried this thing and... <laughs> By golly, you know, there are plenty of other people coming up through the ranks of the Hall of Faith, and 
we're moving this promise thing on to somebody else. He sticks with Abram by his grace. He changes his name to Abraham, Sarah's name, or Sarai's name to Sarah. So now we've got to remember to call them Abraham and Sarah. And I'll probably mess that up a few times as we're tracking along here. But he gives them then the covenant of circumcision. And it tells us as we came to the end of chapter 17, and particularly there in verse 21 of chapter 17, if I can kind of draw back before we go into 18, God says to Abraham, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac. Because remember, he said, well, God, can't Ishmael just live before you? I mean, I know this Ishmael thing was a wrong thing. And he kind of tries again to present to God and propose to God the work of his own flesh and say, God, can't you just redeem the work of my flesh? I know this is of the flesh, but I mean, since it's, it exists now, can't you just redeem and use this? I know it's fleshly and carnal, but... Can't you just bless what's fleshly and carnal and, and receive the work and the energy of my own flesh? And as we're going to see many times, God will not receive and God won't accept and he won't use the works of our flesh or the energies of our flesh, especially to fulfill the true plan and the promises of God. Now, we may pass off the works of the flesh as the things of God. And there's a lot of that that... <laughs> quite honestly, I think goes on in a lot of Christian people's lives and really in a lot of churches. You have manifestations of the flesh that are just polished up on the outside to look like the things of God. Paul says in the last days that, you know, that they're, one of the marks of the last days is there'll be a form of godliness, but a lack of the power there. In other words, outwardly, there will be the form of what is looking godly to everyone who views it with a natural eye. But God says, but inwardly, the reality of the power of God and something that's truly generated by the Spirit of God himself, it doesn't exist. It's just all an outward effort of the flesh, polished with godliness. And he, remember, he said, can't Ishmael live before you? And God is now saying this. He said, no, Ishmael won't. But your wife, Sarah, though it's been as long as you possibly think could happen, it seems utterly impossible, she is the one who will bear the child of promise, and that's Isaac who's being referred to here, and that's where we're at in verse 21 of chapter 17. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. Again, the reason the promise had not been fulfilled yet is because God had a set time. And God's promises always have a set time. God's time is never my time, and it drives me crazy, but God's time is a set time. God has everything on his calendar. And the reason God's not as stressed about time as you and I are is because God doesn't live in this time realm continuum that we live in. That, to me, has got to be one of the biggest frustrations of living in a body of flesh, in these natural temporal bodies. Because we're dwelling in a, a realm where everything happens and operates in a, in a time realm continuum. You know, there are minutes and hours, and yet the Bible tells us with the Lord a day is a thousand years, a thousand years is as a day. And, and God's not neglecting to fulfill his promises. He's long-suffering. He wants people to come to repentance. And he doesn't measure time the same. And that's how it works with God's promises. That's why God declares things hundreds of years before they happen as if they already happened. That's how God, that's what prophecy is. Because God already lives in the future. God dwells and, and spans everything. God can speak of something that's going to happen hundreds of years from now with direct spe specificity as if it has already happened. He declares it like it's a reality because to him, he spans everything. For us, we take one day at a time, one hour at a time. And that's so hard for us because we're disconnected in that sense and we fail to realize that, that God has to have a set time. And that set time somehow is something God's determined and yet it happens somewhere in the calendar of where we're going. So Abraham, listen, at the set time, so now at least he gets a little more revelation each time. Now he's finally got a little thread of hope to hold on to at the set time next year. One more year. I bet you Abraham was, hallelujah. You know, he's probably, finally, at least I know, within the next year. So every time he gets a little more revelation, and you can imagine how hard this is. He runs home and he tells you, God appeared to me again. Oh, Abraham, what did he say to you? A year now, Sarah. We're within a year. We're within a year of this thing. I'm 99, so he just, I guess 100 was the right year. You know, it's, you're going to conceive, and at the set time next year, we're finally going to have this child of promise. Now, what's interesting is as Abraham receives this promise that came with the covenant of circumcision, we looked at that last time, he's 99 years old. Sarah is 89 years old. 
It's going to tell us in this next chapter as we look at it in chapter 18. It tells us in verse 11 that Abraham and Sarah were, it says, old, well advanced in age and past the age of childbearing. You notice the Bible is very honest. I think the old King James says stricken in years. You know, so, so just, you know, God, God's very, old age has a way to do that. It, it's pretty brutal. It strikes you down. It, it, age beats you up. And God here doesn't hold back any reality. He doesn't try and say, well, you know, they were, you know, gradually, you know, they're old. They're old, they're well advanced, they're well stricken in years, they're past the age of childbearing. You know, their, their functionality of being able to produce children is long past its time. That's where they're at, and God has just given this promise to Abraham that within the next year, at 99 years old, 24 years after he got the promise, finally, Abraham, the promise is going to come to pass. Now, this is one of the places where Abraham's faith is held out before us as incredibly strong faith and faith to be admired and faith to be emulated for that reason hold your finger here but go over with me to romans chapter four and i wanted to since we have a little time to to develop this for just a few minutes before we look at chapter 18 romans chapter four describes to us and here paul's talking about justification by faith but he touches for a few minutes as the holy spirit leads him upon the faith of abraham Romans chapter 4, well, let's just begin with me in verse 16, just to kind of get the context a little bit. Again, he's using this as a basis for justification by faith, but he ultimately says some really incredible things that define what it means to live a life by faith that Abraham shows as an example. Romans 4, verse 16, therefore, notice, it is of faith that it might be according to grace. How do things happen according to God's grace, it has to be by faith. If it's going to happen by, by the grace of God, then it has to be inherited by faith. It has to be received that way. Salvation and really everything for that matter. So that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith, the type of faith as Abraham, who is the father of us all. That is the father of us all spiritually by faith. He's our representative of faith receiving righteousness. As it is written, I've made you a father of many nations. There's that statement God said to Abraham recently, we just looked at, quoted from Genesis. In the presence of him who who he believed, God, look at this description of God, verse 17, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. That's what we were just talking about in a minute. God who gives life to the dead. This is the God that we serve and the God whom we're supposed to have faith in. God who gives life to the dead. God who can resurrect life and bring life back to something though it has completely died. God can give life back to the dead. God can give life back to the dead of somebody who's dead in trespasses and sins and make them alive in Christ. God can give life to a dead marriage to a destroyed relationship, to a dead-end hope. God can give life to the dead. He can rejuvenate and revive anything and bring it back to life. God who gives life to the dead, and I love this next statement, and who calls things which do not exist as though they did. So that means, and that's why we see in in the Scriptures things like where God comes to Gideon in Judges chapter 6, and he says, Gideon, you mighty man of valor. You know, he's telling Gideon, you strong warrior. Now, you remember what Gideon was doing when God came and said that? He, like a coward, was hiding down in the threshing floor away from the Midianites, threshing wheat, because he was so terrified that he might get caught or killed or harmed that he's hiding like an utter coward. He's like one of the biggest cowards in the community, and God appears to him and says, you mighty man of valor. In other words, you are the most courageous soldier in the nation. Well, what's God doing? God's speaking to him regarding the potential that God saw he could produce in his life. In other words, God was calling him something that he, what he would be that, that he wasn't at the time, which is what this, that, that God is a God who calls those things which do not exist as though they did. So God looks at the person who's 
you know, strung out on drugs, and, and God says, you know, you, you holy and righteous individual. In other words, God can say, look, I, I see you, and I see you're going to be delivered. I declare that you're going to be delivered, and you're going to walk in liberty, and you're going to have victory over this, or, or God looks at someone, and he speaks to them regarding his potential because he knows what he can do in life. So God can declare something and say, it already is this way before it ever is in a situation, in a life. I mean, that's incredible to realize that God has such confidence in what he can do in any life or any situation. He, he declares it as if it's already true before it has ever even come to pass because he has that capability that where nothing's impossible with him. So this is the God that Abraham is hearing these things from. That's why verse 18, notice it tells us, and this is describing again the faith of Abraham. That's what verse 16 says. This is the faith of Abraham. Verse 18, who contrary to hope, in hope believed so that he could become the father of many nations according to what was spoken so shall your descendants be. So one thing we see about Abraham's faith, verse 18, is Abraham, his faith, contrary to hope, in hope believed. So when he felt utterly hopeless, he still chose by faith to keep hoping in what God was able to do. Contrary to hope, in hope he believed. And sometimes you are facing things and I'm looking at a situation or dealing with something and every single thing that we're staring at says absolutely hopeless. That's hopeless. It's a dead-end trail. It's dead. Well, it may be dead, but I serve a God who can take what's dead and bring it back to life. I serve a God who caused those things that do not exist as though they did. So contrary to hope, because I serve a God who gives life to the dead, I can look at the most dead end hopeless situation and realize that contrary to the hope that I am experiencing right now, the hopelessness, there's no hope. In hope, I can say, but you know what? I am still going to hope because I'm going to believe that contrary to my hopelessness, that God's still able to do something. And that's kind of where Abraham was at. 24 years, he'd been hanging on this promise. You want to talk about struggling with human disappointment and discouragement and, and depression and despondency. He's a man just like you and I. You know, we, let's never make the Bible characters superheroes. They're saints held before us to encourage us, but they were men of like passion, the Bible tells us. And Abraham, just like you and I, would have the same challenges, the same struggles, but contrary to hope, in hope he believed. Verse 19, it says, And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, there it is, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. So another, what, is it, what does it mean to live a life by faith again? That we don't consider our human limitations. He was a, almost 100 years old. His body was dead. The deadness of Sarah's womb. In other words, these were their human limitations. A life of faith does not take into consideration human limitations. A life of faith looks at God's capabilities. It disregards human limitations. Because we realize that, that, that God's not like us. And my human limitations mean nothing. That's, that's the, the thing that we deal with. You know, we, we look at what our capabilities are and we think, okay, well, that plus maybe a little bit of God. And no, it says that Abraham did not consider the limitations of his own human ability. And when you're facing something, don't look at your own human limitations. Don't look at human limitations that exist in a situation. Look at God. And the ability of what God is able to do. So Abraham, it says, he didn't consider his own body. Don't let the mind get in way because, you know, the first book I ever read as a Christian was a book by A.W. Tozer and it was called Faith Beyond Reason. And the, the title of the book is the definition. It was a studies, I believe, from John chapter 6. But, but it was such a good thing for me as a brand new Christian. Faith Beyond Reason. Because a lot of times what happens is once we enter into the faith, we start to read the Bible and we get a little spiritually mature. And then we start trying to reason everything out all the time. And we get a little over logical and over pragmatic, even in our Christian life. And we kind of lose that, what's it called? Childlike faith <laughs> where we're supposed to not be childish, but be childlike. Think about a child's faith. And 
children don't reason things out. You just tell them something that may seem utterly ludicrous and impossible to an adult because they'll reason it out. Oh, that's not quite, that's not possible because this doesn't match that and, and that doesn't line up. And you just tell a child, okay. And they just believe because they don't reason it out. They just believe it at face value. And, and, and our problem a lot of times is we consider things too much. We, we, we over-consider things. Again, there's a balance. I'm not trying to say we should be presumptuous. I'm not endorsing presumptuous, hasty, foolish Christianity. But by the same token, let's not overly consider and scrutinize all of the human things to the extent that we fail to have faith beyond reason sometimes. Faith isn't always reasonable. A lot of times it's not. It's not reasonable that a 100-year-old man and an 89, 90-year-old woman have a baby. That's not reasonable. That's not logical. Their bodies weren't capable, but God was the one that was doing something. Abraham, it says, didn't consider him in Sarah's condition. Verse 20, he did not waver at the promise of God through, notice, unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what God had promised, he was able to perform. Again, he didn't waver in faith. Verse 20 says again, giving glory to God. In other words, he was thanking God, giving glory to God before God ever did what God said he was going to do. That's faith again. God, I thank you for this baby that you're going to give to Sarah and I. Lord, I thank you. I just I, I look forward to experiencing, and, and I thank you, Lord, for what you're going to do. And there is an element to our Christian life with faith, whereby at times we should thank God in advance and give glory to God in advance. Maybe you're trusting the Lord for something, and it is the will of God. And you're waiting on God's timing in this set time, and God's calling you to live by faith, and he wants you to start thanking him. Lord, I thank you that you're going to do this. Thank you that you're going to do this in this person's life. I just give you glory and praise because I know you're able to do it. I don't know how you're going to do it, Lord. I don't know when you're going to do it, but I thank you that I know this is your plan, and I just... I trust you, Lord, and I, so I just praise you in advance. A lot of times, once, once the process comes to pass, then we're, oh, praise God, glory to God. And we should do that too. But what about thanking God before it ever happens? As an act of faith, as a demonstration of a faith, Lord, I thank you that this loved one's going to get saved. I thank you, Lord, because I know it's your will, and I know you're working, and, and we Lord, I thank you, thank you, Thank you that I can look forward to the day of their salvation and to thank the Lord in advance. We know it's God's will people get saved. Lord, I thank you that you're going to fulfill this promise or you're going to provide this or you're going to do that. We know it's your heart, so Lord, we just thank you in advance. And we just we don't know how it's going to happen or when, but we just thank you. That's what Abraham was doing, giving glory to God, it says, being fully convinced that what he promised he was able to perform. That's a life of faith. Again, if God's promised it, with his mouth, he can fulfill it with his hand. God has the power to perform anything, and God always keeps his word. Don't let your experiences with people in this life ever translate over the way you view and experience things with God. Or even, you know, what you do. I perfectly keep every single one of my promises? I wish I could say over all the years I've been on this earth that I've done that every time. But you know what? Even in my best intention, sometimes I still fail. Or I can't follow through because I have human limitations. And people fail us, but whatever God promises, he has the power to perform. That's different about God. And a life of faith says, I thank you, Lord, that everything you promise, you have the power to perform. And Abraham sets this incredible example, and I'm so glad the Holy Spirit gives this to us in Romans 4. You can come back with me to Genesis. Let's look at chapter 18 together. But what a great passage to see what a life of faith is really like. And maybe you can apply some of those things to your very own life. Now, as we pick up in chapter 18, we find Abraham here, it says again, then the Lord appeared to him. So again, another appearance, Jehovah God comes and gives another revelation to Abraham. After, remember, the end of chapter 17, we saw he had just circumcised himself, his 13-year-old son, all of the male servants in his house. Now, circumcising yourself as an adult, you can guarantee there was a little recovery period. And that was an act of faith as well. Please understand, that was an act of faith as well. Don't miss that because as they're all recovering from that, that made the entire compound or whatever you want to call it is that Abraham was living in with his family and all of his servants at this time, it made them very vulnerable to enemy there because all the men were incapacitated for at least a few days. I assure you that. 
So it was a life of faith for Abraham to obey God. Remember, it says the same day, circumcised himself, circumcised Ishmael, his son, and all of his male servants, and in obedience to the word of God, made a costly sacrifice to obey God and had the respect so incredible among all of his servants and everyone around him that they said, if you'll do that, if you're going to obey God, we're going to obey God with you and, and, and we'll sacrifice too and we'll come right alongside of you. And so they're now completely vulnerable. They're recovering from this circumcision covenant that God has given to them and it's at that point it seems they're kind of just laying low and sitting around. Verse 18, then the Lord appeared to Abraham by the terebinth trees of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent in the heat of the day. So he's just kind of, again, relaxing in the Mideastern culture. If you've ever been over there before, you know anything about that culture or really any hot culture for that matter. Typically in the middle of the day, they don't do very much at all. They try and just ride out the hottest part of the day, basically to the best of their ability, doing absolutely nothing. Because it's just so hot and difficult in the middle of the day. They do things in the morning and they do things later in the day as the sun starts to set. But that middle of the day is extremely hot. So he's just sitting there kind of just trying to stay you know, as comfortable as possible. And as he's there, the Lord appears to him. So we have another appearance of God going to take place. Verse 2 it says, So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold... Three men, and the idea seems that you know all of a sudden he's just kind of sitting in his tent flap, and he looks out, and all of a sudden here's this appearance of three individuals that stepped out of where, nowhere. Well, we're going to see this is the Lord Himself and two angels. So the reason they behold just appeared is because they just stepped out of the eternal dimension and right into the physical realm. And that's why all of a sudden here he is in the middle of kind of this hot wilderness area. You know, where did these two guys come from? Well, or three of, from eternity. So they, they show up and it says, he sees three men standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them. And he bowed himself to the ground. So he instantly had some sense of recognition and discernment. These aren't just three natural men. Because listen, in a hot Mideastern culture, a hundred-year-old man don't jump and run and fall on the ground for just three any ordinary people. It's Again, this is a hundred-year-old man. He runs. He gets up from sitting there taking a siesta. He runs towards them, and it says he bows to the ground. The idea is paying homage. And again, it's a patriarchal society. People bowed down to Abraham among the camp where he lived at. It would be very atypical for him to bow down to other people unless he realized the incredible, in a sense, superiority of those who were there. So he realizes there's something divine about these visitors. Again, that it's the Lord himself appearing, as verse 1 tells us, and two angels together with him. And he said, as he's bowed down to the ground, my Lord... My Adonai, literally in the Hebrew, if I've now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by, notice, your servant. He's recognizing himself as a servant of these individuals and particularly the one he's referring to as my Lord. He says, verse 4, please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. And after that, you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. And they said, do as you have said. So typical Mideastern hospitality as well as you know, any of the Bedouins would in that day. Even still to this day, if you go over to that territory, they put a very, very high level of importance upon hospitality, something we've kind of lost, especially in our culture around here. But instantaneously, Abraham wants to entertain them. He realizes, though they're strangers, there's something about them. Interesting, remember Hebrews 13 tells us that, that we should you know, entertain strangers because we don't know if in doing such at times you may be entertaining angel unaware. And, and here Abraham, he hops up, he, he pleads with them, listen, please don't leave since you've graced me with your presence. I think he senses maybe this may be another message the Lord has and I don't want to miss it. So he asked them, please stay. Let me minister to you. Let me wash your feet, he says. Let me bring you something to eat. Take a rest for a while. Be refreshed while you're here. Because he, he wants their presence to linger because he realizes maybe God has something. He's sensing 
that there's something very divine about this moment. What a beautiful thing, because it almost sort of reminds us of how later on, remember, somebody else will, will, will end up washing feet. But in John 13, it's the reverse. Jesus ends up being the one washing his disciples' feet. And this was just a very polite way of refreshing a guest as they walked in that hot climate and culture and their feet got very dirty in sandals. It was a very refreshing, soothing thing to wash feet. So he's saying, look, let me wash your feet. Again, he's, he's humbling himself to be a servant. And it's a beautiful thing because here you have Abraham, again, this great example. And he's not just someone who ministers for the Lord, but notice he's someone who ministers to the Lord. He's saying, let me wash your feet. Let me nourish you. Let me provide something for you. And you know, I'll tell you, one of the things that is so critical that many times we neglect and we pass over is we're so much in a hurry to want to minister for the Lord that a lot of times we neglect the reality that our first calling is to minister to the Lord. Acts 13 says that as they were ministering to the Lord in prayer and fasting, the Holy Spirit spoke and said, separate unto me Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I've called. But it says they were ministering to the Lord, not for the Lord. That is something that we do as well, but ministering to the Lord. And one of the most important things that we never can neglect in our own lives is just ministering to the Lord himself. Just blessing the Lord, doing things to bless his heart and to honor him and, and to do things to, to seek to really please and, and, and show our appreciation towards him. And this is what you see Abraham doing. He says, please, don't pass by. You've come to your servant. So the response comes, okay, if this is what you like to take place, they say, we'll stay for a while. Do as you have said. Notice verse 6 again. So Abraham hurried into the tent and he said, to Sarah, quickly make ready three measures of fine meal and knead it and make cake. So he, again, runs out to them. Now he leaves. He runs in. Interesting. Remember, they have all kinds of servants. But Abraham realizes, you know, and I'm not trusting this meal to one of the uh, <laughs> servants. He goes right to Sarah. He says, Sarah, listen, we're having guests for dinner. One of them is God and the other two are angels. So, you know, we need to get on this. And that, uh, you know, typical pot roast thing, that's not going to work tonight. You know, it just says God and two angels. And I don't want to trust somebody else with a meal here. He says, look, uh, quickly, he says, make ready three measures, a fine meal, knead it, make some cakes. Abraham himself, verse 7 as well, he runs out to the herd. Again, notice a lot of running for a 100-year-old guy. Again, he ran to the herd, took a tender and a good calf, gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So again, in that day, it was, it was a process to make preparations. It wasn't an instant, you know, throw, you know, something in the microwave or, you know, these quick turn-on meals. It was a process. Grind the meal, make cakes, slaughter an animal, you know, all this process. It was a process to make a meal for someone, and that's why it was so valued, the hospitality. So he now takes this calf they begin to hasten to prepare it. And he took butter, verse 8, and milk and the calf which he had prepared. And he set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree as they ate. Notice, they ate food. Now, that's, I like that. Again, here are the Lord and two angels stepping out of the glorified eternal dimension. And they partake of a meal, which tells me that the eternal body, we do eat in heaven as well. And it's probably nine non-calorie food. I'm, I'm, I'm certain about that. So you can just remember when Jesus in his glorified body, it tells us, meets up with Peter and some of the disciples. And there's broiled fish and, and, and says that Jesus ate in that glorified resurrected body. So one of the things that we do know we will do in heaven, Sunday morning, we saw no marriage. But there is meals, and praise the Lord for that. So they're, they're eating here. They, they indulged what is provided for them. They ate. And then they said to him, verse 9, Where is Sarah, your wife? And Abram said, Here in the tent. Again, the tents would have separations because typically where the men would meet and the women were usually was an area that was separated from one another. It was just cultural. But they ask, interesting, where is Sarah, your wife? Now, one commentator pointed out, and I think this is insightful. Never considered this before. Where is Sarah, your wife? Now, at this point, their names were just changed. 
Who are the only three individuals that know about the name change? Abraham, Sarah, and God. So obviously this is clearly the Lord and a divine experience taking place here because he says, not where is Sarai, your wife, where is Sarah, your wife? Because he realizes that. But more than that, what an exhortation, I think, for us today, even as husbands, that God says to Abraham, where is your wife? Abraham, where is your wife? I'm here with you, but where's your wife at? And I point that out because as husbands, I think that God holds us accountable, not just for where we're at, but for where our wives are at. I think it's our primary ministry, and it's our spiritual accountability before the Lord to know where our wife is at. You know, and, and it's in set in contrast, when we get to Genesis chapter 19, you're going to see the problem with Lot as a carnal, carnal, worldly believer, is Lot has no idea where his wife's at. And again, I'm not talking about geographically. Do you understand what I'm saying? Lot didn't take into consideration where his wife was at, emotionally, spiritually. all, And because of that, she's lagging behind and looking back, and she can't get Sodom out of her system. And she ends up looking back, and of course, we know, losing her life and destruction. The family was a mess. The contrast between an ungodly, carnal man who doesn't know where his wife's at and the man of God, the man of faith, who he's asked, where is your wife? And he says, she's right here. I know right where she's at. She's right by my side. And, and, and I think sometimes the Lord asks us that. Maybe it's a searching question the Lord is asking you or has asked you recently as a husband. Hey, do you know where your wife is at? Do you take the time to know where your wife is at? You know where everybody else is at. A lot of times we can be busy ministering to this person and doing this and occupied in that and all these other things, and we neglect the most important responsibility, which God says to us, but well, how's your wife doing? Where's your wife at? Well, you know, let's take it a step further, even for us as parents. You know, where are our children at? Well, where's your children at? Do you know where they're at? Do you take time to find out where they're at, to be engaged, to be involved? I think these things matter to the Lord. And I think it's a very noble thing in contrast, especially to Lot, who we'll see in the next chapter. God says, Abraham, where is your wife? And he says, she's right here in the tent. He was aware of where her, his wife was at that time. And he said to him, I will certainly return to you, notice, according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. So again, the promise reaffirmed again. Just... One more time, according to the time of life. There was a set time of life where they would then conceive and have this child. And again, it was something that God had on his timetable. It was the time of life when that conception would take place. That's why they were barren up until the point when God, God allowed that. Because God wanted it to be clearly evident that it was nothing other than a miraculous work of his spirit. That the life that was given to that situation, it sprung forth as a miracle of God and nothing other than that. It was no effort of the flesh of man. So he says, according to the time of life, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And in parenthetical statement, we get verse 10. And Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. So she's overhearing this conversation between Abraham and these three visitors, the Lord being one of them. And verse 11, now Abraham and Sarah, again, here it is, the description, the Bible is so honest. Abraham and Sarah, they want us to know, were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. So just in case we had any question where they were at, God says, let's make it very clear. Old, well advanced, past the age of childbearing naturally, in verse 12, therefore Sarah, because those things were true, as she heard, according to the time of life, you're going to have a child next year. It says Sarah laughed, circle that word, within herself. She doesn't chuckle out loud. Inwardly, she hears this. She, she just kind of, you know, a little bit of that, you know, internal smirk and kind of like, oh, <laughs> this is just getting, I mean, I mean, how many times I've heard this, she's thinking to herself, and she laughs. 
in a little bit of unbelief, obviously, because we're going to see the Lord kind of gives a bit of a reproof to this, this sort of inward chuckle of, of thinking upon this as just seeming to be a little bit outlandish. Sarah laughed within herself, so it wasn't an out loud thing, saying, after I have grown old, shall I have pleasure my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, interesting, why did Sarah laugh? Now, why didn't he ask Sarah that? <laughs> he asked Abraham again. Why did Sarah just laugh, he says, Abraham, saying, shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Now, take into consideration what I just said. How did Sarah laugh? Internally. Nobody heard Sarah laugh on the other side. She wasn't on the other side of the tent flap going, <laughs> and, and they, hey, what's that? She laughs within herself, but God saw what was going on inside of her heart. And see, we may hide from everybody else, especially in this Christian life and life of faith. You know, we don't want to show our doubts to people because we're so, in, well, people won't think I'm a strong Christian if I'm honest that I'm doubting something or I'm discouraged. So, so I'm going to, amen, praise the Lord, hallelujah, everything's fine, fine, I'm fine, you're fine, we're fine. And, and, and yet within ourselves, we're struggling, we're doubting, and God sees that still. We might as well just walk in the light because God sees it still. To me, God can, I would much, much rather, I know myself first, I would much rather have somebody just be blatantly honest and just blunt with me regarding where they're at, especially spiritually, than try and put on some show or some front. I think God can work with that better. If you don't want to read your Bible, tell me. I, I don't want to read my Bible. I just don't feel like reading. Why don't you read it? Well, because, no, I just don't feel like reading my Bible. How come you don't pray anymore? I just, I just don't feel like praying anymore. Why don't you go to church? Why don't I say I don't want to go to church? All right, at least I can work with that. But don't give me these petty little excuses. Oh, well, I, I'm too busy to go to church. or I'm, I, just, I just can't find time to read. Look, come on. Let's just be honest. Because God can see what's going on inside anyway. Well, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. I'm okay. No, you're not. You are struggling with doubt and you are so discouraged. And, and God said, why did she laugh? God saw what was happening within her. And God sees what's happening within you. Look, don't be ashamed of what's happening inside of you. God's not shocked. God's not shocked by struggles and challenges and unbelief. He's aware of that. He says, why did Sarah laugh when she heard that I would tell you you would bear a child in my old age? And then verse 14, that classic question, but what a great encouragement is as well. God says, is anything too hard for the Lord? And the answer, obviously, is what? No. It's one of, the, you know, it's one of those questions to indicate a truth. Is there anything? She just laughed at this. It just seems so impossible. True. But God says, is there anything too hard for the Lord? Yeah, there's things too hard for us, too hard for people. But is anything too hard for the Lord? Nothing is. You know, in Jeremiah chapter 32, after an extended time of desolation in the land of Judah, God declares to, to, um, to Jeremiah to buy a parcel of land. And he says to Jeremiah, though the land would be desolate for years, he said, Jeremiah, houses and fields and vineyards will once again be possessed in this land. Sounded completely impossible. So he says, buy a parcel of land. As an act of faith, buy land, believing that one day I'm going to rejuvenate everything that's totally devastated right now. It's going to happen again. I'm going to rejuvenate everything that was lost here. And Jeremiah says this, Jeremiah 32, 17, Ah, Lord God, behold, you've made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. It's almost the answer to this question. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? God says all the way back in Genesis. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? The Holy Spirit says. And then in Jeremiah 32, 17, God answers his own question through the prophet Jeremiah. There is nothing too hard for the Lord. Nothing. We know the New Testament teaches us the same. Luke 1.37, the angel announces the miraculous birth that, remember, Mary is going to have. And there the angel says, for with God nothing will be 
impossible. Listen, that's why we can live a life of faith. We don't have to consider our human limitations. We don't have to try and figure out how it will be performed or how it will come to pass. All we need to know is who God is. If we know who God is, then beyond reason, it supersedes reason, we can realize, listen, as hard as it seems to figure out how and as impossible as it looks, maybe it's a financial situation, maybe it's a marital situation, maybe it's somebody's conversion, maybe it's something coming to pass in regards to God's calling or plan for your life, maybe it's some change or some deliverance from a habit that controls you. Listen, is there anything too hard for the Lord? No. There's nothing too hard for the Lord. With God, the Bible says, all things are possible. Nothing will be impossible. And here this great exhortation to Sarah and Abraham is they're dealing with the same things that we deal with many times. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Verse 14, at the appointed time, I will return to you. Again, at the appointed time. That's the thing. I will return according to the time of life and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, well, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, I love God. He just, uh, no, Sarah, you did laugh. Okay, let's, again, I love the way, I didn't laugh. I would, I'm a woman of faith. No, you just struggled with doubt, Sarah. Let's just, again, let's cut the hypocrisy. You laughed. And your child's going to be called laughter to remind you that you did laugh and you did doubt. So, again, just, you know, I love the way God, he's just so candid. You know, he's, he's lovingly blunt. That's what I call God. He's just lovingly blunt. He just calls things the way they are, and I, I need that in my life. Then the men arose from there and looked towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them, it says, on the way. And the Lord said, notice verse 17, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Now, this is interesting. Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? The two servants, the angels, they walk towards Sodom now, which we'll look at next week more as we get there. And it says, The Lord, Jehovah, stays there with Abraham and says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they may keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. I love the way that reads there in verse 19 regarding Abraham. I've known him in order that, notice, great exhortation, parents, dads, that he may command his children and his household that they may keep the way of the Lord. Not just that he would keep the way of the Lord, but his calling was also to be an influence to others that his children may keep the way of the Lord. This was part of God's plan that he would raise up his children in the same way to do righteousness and justice, that God would bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. But we have this beautiful picture here now where, and of course we know what's going to happen, God's going to begin to reveal to Abraham what? That he's about to judge Sodom and Gomorrah because of the grievous sin, remember, that Lot is in, in that whole community over there in Sodom, the mess that the, the, the society of Sodom is in. And so God says here in verse 17, shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? God's about to do something. Now the Bible tells us 2 Chronicles 20, verse 7, Isaiah 41, 8, and then in James chapter 2 again, that Abraham is given the title and referred to as the friend of God. God calls Abraham his friend. Now, it's one thing for us to say God is our friend. But when God Almighty, the Almighty God says, Abraham is my friend, that's pretty awesome. When God himself says, this is my friend. One thing for us to say, oh yeah, God's my friend. and he's But when God himself declares this man, this individual, they are my friend. That speaks very powerfully of the respect of the relationship that God has with that person on a level of intimacy. That God would say, yes, that person, I consider them my friend. They're my friend. And because of that friendship relationship, what do friends do? Friends share things with each other, right? 
friends communicate things. So because Abraham has this intimate, close relationship with God, God's going to reveal things to Abraham. God says, I'm about to do something, so I'm going to include Abraham so that he's in the know regarding what I'm doing. And one of the most wonderful things about having a close, intimate relationship with God and why we should have a, a close, intimate relationship with God is so that God can give us information and inform us and reveal to us what he's doing. Because God's always doing things. He's not always just judging Sodom and Gomorrah, but God's always doing things. And we want to know what God's doing. And he says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? Again, he's a part of this process. I have a plan for his life, so I want him to be aware of what I'm doing. I'm going to give him advance notice. The idea is, Psalm 25:14 says, The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. Amos 3, 7 says this, listen, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. See, the Bible teaches here and in other places that at times, those who are walking in closeness to the Lord, God reveals things to them. He shows things to them. And he shows them what he's doing, what he's about to do. He gives them advance notice. Hey, this is what I am doing. And he gives them insight like a friend that says, hey, I want to share with you. I'm going to take this new job. Or I'm going to do this. And a friend tells another friend about something they're about to do. That God does that with those who he's in a close relationship with. Those, it says, who fear him, those who are his servants. What a beautiful thing that sometimes when we walk in close fellowship with God, he will show us what he is doing. Again, the New Testament tells us in regards to being a relationship with Jesus, Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, but what? Friends. If you're in relationship with Jesus Christ, he calls all followers his friends which means that the Lord, by his Holy Spirit, as you abide in him and stay close to him, wants to show you what he's doing. At times, he wants to give you advance awareness. Why? Because he believes, therefore, you're going to get in compliance with what he's doing. He's going to show Abraham what he's doing. Why? Just so Abraham would go, I know what God's doing. And for $99.99, you can come to my seminar and I'll tell you what God's doing. No. Why? He's going to tell Abraham what he's about to do because Abraham will come into cooperation in partnership with what God is doing. And then that cooperation comes to pass as, as Abraham says, hey, well, I want to do what God's doing. And I want to come in compliance with that. And, of course, we see that as this intercessory prayer starts to happen. So, verse 20, the Lord God said, because the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, he says, I will go down now and see whether they've all together done all together according to the outcry against it as it's come up to me. And if not, I will know. So again, God's saying, listen, he's informing Abraham that judgment is about to come against Sodom and Gomorrah. Again, it says, because their sin is very grave. And that's an understatement. And, and we'll see that as we look more at Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter 19, their sin is very good. So he's informing that the judgment of God is about to fall. That God, to demonstrate his justice, is coming in advance to prove out that he is totally just and righteous in the fact that he's about to judge these people. That they have come to the fool of their iniquity and therefore God's judgment was the right thing. Verse 20 says, And then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom. So they then begin to go, the two angels, who will ultimately bring about and bring down the judgment of God as the catalyst in this divine judgment. They turn, they begin to walk towards Sodom. Notice, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Abraham realized, do you know what? I know what God is doing. I know what God's about to do. And I need to partner together with God now. And then this is what prompts Abraham to pray. And he now starts to intercede. We know this passage, many of us, he starts to intercede for Sodom now. Why? Because Lot's there. Someone he loves is in Sodom. Someone he loves, he knows, is living in compromise, is living pretty carnally, and their life is a mess, and he's burdened. And he now begins this whole intercessory process as he begins to dialogue together with 
with God and, and, and why? And, and, and I'm going to have to end on this note and we'll have to pick up with the intercession and move into where we're going next week. For time's sake, we're going to leave you with a cliffhanger. But, but let me say this. As we look at Abraham's intercession, he's just one of people that we see that become intercessors in the Bible. Moses becomes an intercessor later. Remember, Samuel becomes an intercessor. Where does that intercession come from? I believe it comes from God. I believe the reason people truly at times are used as intercessors by God is because God's Spirit touches their heart to intercede. And all they do is become aware of what God is doing. The Bible says that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God doesn't like to judge. God always wants to be merciful. God is looking. I know this is apparent. I'm an evil human father. At times, I'm bending over backwards. Like, Please, I've told you this seven times. You know, like, I, will you, you know, and you ever, maybe I'm a weird parent, but it's like, I don't want to have to judge you, you know, to discipline you. And I'm an evil human parent with much less patience than God. God doesn't like to judge. So at times, God, through interacting with those who are close to him, by the impulse of a spirit, puts upon their heart a desire to stand still, to sit in that place, and to begin to cooperate with God because God says, you know what, I, I, it's right and just that I should judge. But I could retreat into my mercy to some extent if someone would intercede and beg and plead on the behalf of someone else. And so sometimes God's spirit puts it upon someone's heart to stand still, to stand in the gap, and to become an intercessor. But again, no glory to us. We're just coming into cooperation with what God's doing because he's prompting us to intercede. So then God has a reason to answer that prayer and to say, well, they interceded. Moses pleaded for the people. It's not, oh, Moses, he's such a great guy. Who gave Moses the heart to intercede? God did. Oh, Samuel, he's such an intercessor. Who's the greatest intercessor? Jesus. What's his main role in heaven right now? He's making intercession of the right hand of the Father. That being said, consider this. We are never more, in some ways, like the Lord than when we're in intercession. Because that's Jesus' constant, continuous ministry, intercession. And when he prompts us to intercede for the lots and for communities and for people who are in an absolute mess, in many ways we become never more like the Lord than when by his spirit we're being prompted to do that. Turn with me to Ezekiel 22. I just want to read a verse. I promise I'm not going to comment and we'll close in prayer, but we'll use this maybe as a connection for, for next week as we think about Abraham and this intercession that he's going to do on behalf of Sodom. Ex, Ezekiel, excuse me, Ezekiel chapter 22. And hopefully this validates a little bit of what I'm saying from a scriptural standpoint. Kind of supports what I'm trying to share here. Ezekiel 22, God has been talking about the, the, just the corruption of the nation at that time and how it was so ripe for the judgment of God. Even the prophets and the, the spiritual leaders were just completely a mess. The people had used oppressions and robbery and mistreated the poor and the needy. In verse 30, Ezekiel 22, 30, look at this verse. God declares, So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me. What did Abraham just do, we saw? He stood still before the Lord. And he said, I'm going to stand here and plead for those people. And he stood in the presence of God, motivated by the Spirit of God, to intercede, God says, I sought for a man among them who would make a wall, stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. That is a sad testimony. God says, I couldn't find an intercessor. Couldn't find one. But God's looking for him all the time. And notice, God's looking for a man. It doesn't say a whole movement of churches. It doesn't say a whole ministry. It doesn't say a music band. It says 
God's looking for a man. One person in tune with the heart of God, a friend of God, hearing what's on God's heart, sensitive to what God is doing, and therefore in compliance and cooperation, coming to God in prayer and saying, Lord, how can I cooperate with you? And how can I intercede for this person or this situation? And how God's looking for that. And Abraham, we'll see, becomes a great example of that. Well, let's stand. Our time's eluded us. And we'll pray. And you make it all the way through chapter 18. But it's kind of a good breaking point for transitioning to the 19th chapter for next time. Father, thank you for your word, for its truths and insights. And, and Lord, may your word be our meditation throughout this remainder of the day and even in this night that it would thread itself through our being that it lord it might become the very thing that we live out in our lives by faith as well lord water your word like seed that we've sown into our soul and help us by your grace to walk with you in the week ahead and we ask these things in jesus name and everybody said amen